0: All right. If you'll take your copy of God God's Word and turn to Ezekiel chapter thirty-seven, it is hard to believe we are in chapter thirty-seven of Ezekiel. In in a sense, it feels like we've been here for some time in the Book of Ezekiel, but it kind of feels like we hadn't started it not too long ago either. So that we started it not too long ago. So we are we're steadily making our way through it, and we are in the middle of really a wonderful set of. Passages of hope and restoration to the nation of Israel. A lot that we can glean from these uh, these chapters we've been going through in these passages. Uh, if you recall, or if, uh, if you don't know, chapter 36 was given to us, uh, was given to Ezekiel, and, and in that chapter, Israel was given a promise of future hope. And, and really, that hope and that future restoration has kind of been a theme. Uh, since chapter thirty three, you know, we, we had a lot of judgment chapters, and, and we mentioned when we got to chapter thirty three that that would begin the promises of future hope and restoration to the nation of Israel that God would give to them. Chapter thirty six was very specific to that; it gave very specific promises of that future hope and, and restoration. And if you recall, Brian brought out in that passage that promises were going to come to pass, both because of the love that God had for His nation, the nation of Israel, the one that He covenanted with, and also because of God's concern for His holy name. By restoring Israel and fulfilling His promises to them, the whole world will one day see that He is both true to His Word and fully capable of bringing His will to pass. He's not thwarted by what Israel has done, what anybody else has done, by the power of Babylon or by the power of any other earthly nation. The passage before us tonight is not really a separate message than the one, from the one in, in chapter 36. It's really a continuation of that message from chapter 36. In this passage tonight, and we will just be covering verses 1-14, through 14, but in this passage tonight, we get a vivid illustration of how the promises of chapter 36 will ultimately, ultimately be fulfilled. The prospect of Israel being restored by God to the height of her beauty and grandeur, they looked impossible at this point for the people of Israel. As they were a divided nation, they were without a king. Their land really laid in ruin and the people of Israel were scattered into other nations and taken into captivity into Babylon. But God will make clear in this passage that nothing is impossible for Him. The uh, title of my sermon tonight is Death Valley. Death Valley. That is not the stadium over in LSU or Baton Rouge. This is the title of my sermon tonight. But let's begin by reading verses one through fourteen. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out of the spirit of the Lord, out in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and He led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And He said to me, "Son of man, can these bones live?" And I answered, "O Lord God, you know." And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet in an exceedingly great arm, as an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from, from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord. from where he was at in Babylon. We're not really told where he was at at this point. Now there is a, a previous passage where a similar things ha- thing happens. He's taken in the Spirit of the Lord and we know he was in his home at that point and he's taken from his home to Jerusalem. But here, we don't know exactly where he's at. We just know he's he's still in Babylon. He's still in captivity there. And he is taken, as we're told, in the Spirit of the Lord and transported in a, in a vision somewhere. Here he is transported to the middle of the valley, as we're told, or, or the plain. Now, we don't know what valley this is. There's a lot of speculation as to what valley this could be or what it might be, but we don't know and there's really no way for us to know. We just, we're told it's a valley. More importantly, the, the, the location doesn't matter because it makes no impact on the message itself and what, what God is sending Ezekiel there for. And as, as, as Ezekiel gets to this valley, we see right off the bat that it's full of bones. It's a valley of bones. As we will soon see, these bones are, are human bones. Now I imagine that this was a very very eerie sight for Ezekiel as he was taken and transported in the spirit there I'm sure he was wondering the purpose of this and and you know as he gets put in this valley and he sees these bones again I'm sure it was a very eerie setting for him don't forget and this is actually important for our passage but Israel was in a a very bad state at this time right I mean they were in a very bad place they were in captivity in, in Babylon. And, and the mood and the outlook for Israel as a nation was very gloomy, to say the least. They had been, again, taken from their land into captivity into Babylon. Many had been put to death, including the king and, and many of the religious and political leaders. Jerusalem had been burned. The temple had been desecrated and destroyed. From a human perspective, again, this was as bleak, really, as it could get for Israel. So as Ezekiel was transported to this valley by the Spirit of the Lord, again, there's a good chance that he's thinking bad news is about to come as he's set down in this this valley of bones. These dead bones. In verse 2, we see that the Spirit leads Ezekiel around the bones here. Many of which we're told were on the surface and they they were very dry. Now, Ezekiel was a priest. Let's not forget. So he was not allowed to touch bones in you know according to his duty and otherwise he would have been unclean and unable to perform his bones so to add on to the, the gloomy nature of, of this setting for him I, i'm sure that it made him even more uncomfortable to walk around the this valley of dry bones and to see all of these these dead and dry bones but he's taken here he's been taken here in a vision by god so he walked and he waited to get a word from the lord Ezekiel sees that these bones again are on the surface and they are dry, very dry. And we're told in verse 9 that these bones were were there because men had been slain or killed. Most likely this is because of of a war. That's the setting, that's the picture that we are to get here. They they had been left out here in this valley on the surface. So instead of being buried, which would have been a significant dishonor for uh, Jewish people to just not be buried, to have their carcasses or their remaining... Bones being left out for the birds to eat or or other animals to come and to eat. That's exactly what we see here. Instead of being buried, these bones are just scattered out on top. They have no grave. They are not buried. This is a desecration for the people and in the the mind of the people of the Jews or the people of Israel. Here we see a, a large number of bones. And so it seems to be a large number of people have been put to death or killed. And again, most likely due to war and they've been left to rot here. As Ezekiel walks among these dry bones, these long dead bones, is, that is the picture with them being dry for a very long time, he, he's taking in this ghastly scene. And then God comes to him in verse 3 with a question. He asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? Now again, imagine the scene Ezekiel is seeing here. Nothing but death, right? I mean, nothing but dry dead bones. Ezekiel's answer to God is interesting to me. He doesn't say yes, right? He doesn't say yes, they can live, God. He doesn't answer in the affirmative. But that doesn't mean that he didn't think God was unable, or he thought God was unable to bring these bones back to life. He says, you know God. His answer is in the form of of a basically, you know God, this is your decision. They can live if you say they can. They won't if you say they won't. As Charles Feinberg puts it, it was an answer of, of reverence here. This is an answer of reverence, not giving a positive or a negative response. He's leaving it in the hands of God Himself. He's saying, you know, Lord, you know the outcome, you know what, what your will is, your purpose. You know they can or they, they can according to your will. So here we have the, the setting here, we have a question posed here, and, and this really will, will open up the rest of the passage for us. And so as we, before we dig into the rest of the passage... I kind of want to do something I normally don't do. Normally, I like to unfold a passage by each verse and just take it one verse at a time going 1-14 uh, you know, through 14 as we would here instead of skipping ahead or skipping around. But I, I think for us to fully understand both this question and other sections of this passage fully, I think we need to understand who the bones are and get at least a, a brief understanding of what God is doing here. And what what his message is here. So I'm going to tell you a little bit of the end before we get there. All right, Uh, I'm going to give you just a brief overview of the remaining passage. And then we'll get back and explain explain the rest of the passage in more detail. And this won't take real long, so bear with me. But look, there's a lot of debate. um, Shocking, there's debate in Scripture about what things mean. But there is a lot of debate about what this passage means and what we are to take from it. Some people see this passage actually as an example of the future resurrection of the dead, which we see in the book of Revelation. Some see this as a promise to the New Testament church and how the Great Commission will be fulfilled. That's that's what they see this message as. But both of those, in my opinion, are just reading into the text what is not there and ignoring the plain reading of the text, which makes complete sense. It's just the plain reading of it. And and it really gives us the message of what God wants to be heard here. This is what we know for sure from this passage. There is a valley full of dead bones, which, as we will have read and soon see, through the preaching of His Word, God's Word, through Ezekiel, God will raise these bones to life. We also know, and crucially, I believe, to the understanding of this passage, that verse 11 tells us that these bones represent the whole nation of Israel, and that God will bring them back to life and restore them to their land. Okay, that's the remainder of this passage in a nutshell. We've made a point, especially over the last several weeks, to emphasize how we are to interpret Scripture, right? We are into, to interpret Scripture, and, and I, I, this is the, the goal of the elders here, to, when we preach, to interpret Scripture through a litical, literal, grammatical, historical view or hermeneutic. And once again, if we do that in this passage, there's just no way, I, don't, I think, that we can walk away from tonight thinking that this passage is about the church or about anything other than ethnic, the ethnic nation of Israel. Okay? That, that, that is what this message is intended to be intended to be and who it is about. Alright, so with that in mind, and back to the question that God asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? Given the current seemingly helpless or hopeless state of Israel, God is, is asking in part, was it possible for them to live again? Was it possible for the nation of Israel to, to be again, to live again? Given the hopeless nature of the dead nation really at this time, could they have hope in life again? That is, that is kind of a thrust of this question. And again, Ezekiel responds, You know God. So after Ezekiel's response to this question, God then tells him in verse 4, we see to prophesy over these bones. Now, usually when we hear that word prophesy, we, we think of prophesying future events, right? We think of foretelling the future, for lack of better ways to put it. But that's it's not always what that word means. In fact, many of the uses of that word are not speaking of, of, of future telling or, or the telling of the future at all. In general, it, to prophesy means to preach or speak on behalf of God. It can be to just proclaim instead of to project or predict or, pr- or project the future. In reality, in a sense, we all do this as children of God, or we all should, right? I mean, we are all given the commission to tell others the gospel of Jesus, and when we speak to others the inspired Word of God, which is the Bible, not any dreams or anything else we get apart from that, but it is the Bible, but when we speak the inspired Word of God, then we are in a sense prophesying to them, right? Now, don't mishear me. Again, we're not predicting the future. We're not predicting future events when I say that we all do that to some extent. We're not getting revelation from God like Ezekiel is here, but we can speak the inspired Word of God by telling others exactly what is in the Bible. Right. So here Ezekiel is told by God to prophesy, to speak or speak on behalf of God Himself to these bones. He was to prophesy or preach God's Word to them. Right Now, In my mind, this begs the question, why? Why did God tell Ezekiel to do this? I mean, He's brought in the Spirit of the Lord to this valley, right? Why does God not just do it Himself? Well, first, this is a vision where the the Holy Spirit is, is with Ezekiel and is talking directly to Him, right? God is omnipresent, so He's always everywhere. But Ezekiel is keenly aware of the presence of God here right now, right? As God Himself has spoken to Ezekiel and come to Ezekiel with this vision, he's, and He's given Ezekiel the purpose of this vision. He's going to give Ezekiel the purpose of vision. this vision. The, these bones are also dead, so it's not like it was going to startle them if, if God did it Himself, right? I mean... You might think if we just heard the voice of God here, it's going to startle us. But these bones are dead already. There, there's, there's going to be no event like that if he were to just do it himself instead of, of Ezekiel. They don't even know he's there again because they're dead. And, and also Ezekiel has already acknowledged that all power and authority lies in Yahweh, right? I mean, he's already said that you know God. It's, it's all in your power. And of course, we all know that truth as well. So it's not as if God needed Ezekiel to speak for him right here, right? And Ezekiel knows that as well. God wasn't relying on Ezekiel's oratory skills or any power of Ezekiel in order for him to accomplish what he wanted to do. I mean, if God wanted to to give life to these bones, then He just as easily could have worked 100% apart from any action by Ezekiel, right? Yet He chose not to. He chose to have Ezekiel speak to these dead bones his words and then work through that, right? That's, that's an important example. We'll, we'll talk more about that as we go through this sermon. But I wanted to point that out. God is working through Ezekiel here. We see then in verse 5 and 6 that He, tells, he was to tell these bones, He's to, to speak to these bones that God would cause breath to enter them and make them live. He would cause them to have sinews, flesh, skin, and and breath inside of them. They would be fully formed bodies. They would live again is what what the picture is we're supposed to be getting here. And this would not be just some half-hearted attempt, so to speak, by God to to bring life back to these bones. There would be no partial life or a job almost done. No, God would take these dry, long-time dead bones and He would bring them completely back to life. And he would again do this through the power of his word spoken by Ezekiel. And through this, we're told that they would know he is the Lord. How would they know he's Lord? Was Ezekiel not the one speaking to them? Why would they not credit Ezekiel with the power? I think Ezekiel was a faithful messenger of God, would not attempt to, to take credit for God, God's work. But, but most Israelites, they, they knew that life could only come from God, right? I mean, that was a, a general, head, at least head knowledge that they had of that truth. And so they knew that any life that was given, and it's if they came back to life, that they would know He was the one that gave them life. He is the life giver. So in verses 8 through 7, or 7 through 8, excuse me, Ezekiel, he prophesied as commanded. Again, you don't see him attempt to not do this by telling God how he was the one with all the power or that he'd hate to be given any credit when God needs all the credit and he's the one doing the work. Ezekiel, you don't see him respond here, Yahweh, I know that you said to do this, but you don't need me. It's all of you, so I don't want to take away your glory. So Charles Spurgeon, when preaching on the first miracle that Jesus performed by turning water into wine at a wedding, he commented on the command of Jesus to those standing by to go fill the water at that, that wedding. He commented that some he knew, some professing Christians that he knew at that time, they might, might would take that opportunity to say, No, Lord, for we know that you have the power and you don't need us to make wine. There are some today, I think, who would also, professing to give God the glory, question the necessity of His command here, or or flat out disobey His command to to preach, teach, and be witnesses to Him. That's not at all what we have in the example of Ezekiel here, right? He obeys the command of God to speak to these bones. And upon speaking to these bones, Ezekiel heard them begin to rattle and come together, forming bodies Flesh, sinews, and everything needed to form a human body seemed to come into place for each of these fallen Israelites. But there remained one crucial piece missing. The, the bodies had come together, but there was no breath in them still, right? The most important part of life for a human body had still not yet been given. What we see here, though, is the beginning of that physical life of Israel. The actual physical rebirth of the, of the nation is pictured here. But this can only be fully accomplished by the giving of spiritual life, right? And that is the picture that we see next. So we find in verse 9 that God again tells Ezekiel to prophesy to these bones. This certainly doesn't seem to just be an exercise of futility. Again, I, I, I don't want to belabor the point, but God has a purpose behind Ezekiel prophesying to these bones. There's no question that God I believe is giving us a pattern here giving us direction as to how he works through human messengers. Ezekiel was told to to speak to the breath here to say excuse me to speak to the breath here the Lord God says wind was to come from the four winds. Now this this four winds was a common Jewish idiom or a common Jewish saying which meant from all over the world from the four corners of the world. We actually see this promise of the, of Israel being brought from a four corners of the world in several different scriptures. If you uh, read in Isaiah chapter 43, verses 5 and 6, God says this Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west, I will gather you. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, Do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. So, You see the picture of Israelites being gathered from all over the world. Jeremiah 31, 7 and 8 says, For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Very similar idea, similar language, what we get here, this four corners again, is, is God restoring, the picture of God restoring the nation of Israel from all over the world, bringing them from the scattered places which they had been, been sent to after their rebellion. And again, this is significant because, because God had promised and warned over and over that Israel would be scattered among the nations for their rebellion, Right? We've seen that over and over just in this book. That process had already begun through the captivity of Israel and Judah. But this, this scattering, it would continue and it would grow, if you will. I mean, it would continue to be scattered further and farther. There's very few nations, I think, to this day that don't have a Jewish presence in them. Even though they, they have been restored as a nation to some extent, and I will talk more about that here in a minute, there's still very few nations in, the, in this world probably that don't have some type of Jewish presence in them. So this breath coming again from the four winds, it represents that the restoration of the nation of Israel as they are gathered from the four corners of the earth and given this breath of life. This picture we have of breath through wind being given for life is very reminiscent of the giving of life in, all the way back in creation in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2-7, God formed man from the dust of the ground first, right? That physical life or the physical body was formed first. But just as we see here in our illustration, in the bones of the valley, after the body was formed from the dust of the earth, God then breathed into His nostrils the breath of life and man became a living creature. So we have the, the, the physical body developed first and then He is given life through the breath of God next. The exact example we really have of these bones here. Now, an interesting note, the word for breath in the Hebrew is the word ruha. I'm sure I've pronounced that perfectly. But that's the word for breath here. But it can also be translated in several different ways. It's often translated either breath, wind, spirit, or even spirit, as in spirit of God. In fact, we see three of those four different translations in these 14 verses, verses in our passage. Back in verse 2, Spirit of the Lord is that same word. So is the word breath used here in, in verse 9. And again, the same word is used for winds in verse 9. And down in verse 14, the Spirit of God which would be put into these dry bones is that same word. So this breath is the very breath of God which was to be, bring life to these slain in the valley. And again in verse 10 Ezekiel did as he was told right as as he was commanded he prophesied to these bones. And as he did these bones which now had been formed into human bodies they were given life and they stood. And we're told that they became an exceeding exceedingly great army. So these dead bones they would obey the voice of God and they the word of God and they would receive life. You know it's it's interesting that man walks around every day thinking they're alive, right? Yet they're dead, unable and unwilling to hear and obey God. But here we see the bones, these dead, dry bones, obey the word of God, the word of life and receive life. That speaks both to the foolishness of the lost natural man and the effectual power of God's word. So having given Ezekiel this vision and having shown him this great work of life giving, we can probably assume that Ezekiel didn't fully understand the meaning of what had just happened, right? I mean, he he did as he was commanded. He saw the work of God, but he's probably still wondering the full meaning of of what is going on here. So God tells him in verse 11, and as we covered earlier, God tells Ezekiel that these bones, they represent the whole house of Israel. And and that word whole is significant. It's not just a tribe it's not just a, a, a people from the line of David. It wasn't just the southern kingdom Judah. It wasn't the northern kingdom Israel. No, this is the whole house of Israel here. All twelve tribes, both the north and the southern kingdoms, which had been split now for quite some time, they would be brought to life. This represents the entire nation. We then get a glimpse in the heart and mind of Israel at this point, and perhaps even later, when the, we see the statement here that God says, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. That was the mentality of the people of Israel at this point, and for good reason. Their future, as I mentioned earlier, it looked non-existent, right? I mean, again, the idea of being free from the reign of a foreign nation, specifically the captivity of Babylon and their restoration to their land, that seemed impossible at this point. You could understand why they would have believed that all of their hope was lost and that they had been cut off. Cut off from their land, from their lives, and from Yahweh Himself. This is what God had told them would happen through their rebellion. Not just through Ezekiel and and Jeremiah, but all the way back in the law. This had been warned over and over, right? Right? And so they believed at this point that all of their hope was lost. They thought God was finished with them. He, he was done. And they would never be whole again. But you know, even though this current, that current generation felt that way and believed that, I think the statement very easily could be attributed to future Israel as well. I mean, the idea of Israel even existing as an independent nation uh, is very, has been far, very far-fetched for, for many years. Don't forget that Israel was not really reorganized as an independent nation or at least recognized as an independent nation from the point of their captivity in Babylon all the way until 1948. Further, it's, it's very reasonable to believe that not just those generations, but the still yet future Israel will have these same thoughts as, as they suffer mightily at the hands of the Antichrist during the tribulation period. I mean, the people of Israel will, have, will not have fully regained their land then. They haven't now. And even at that time, the world through the leadership of the Antichrist will attempt to destroy them entirely. Right? They will be oppressed. I mean, the idea of God not being uh, and them not fully being in, in the favor of God and having their land and being you know without hope is going to be severely pressed on them, especially during that tribulation period. So you can see this this mentality not just being with the current future or the current generation of Israel here in Ezekiel's time, but I mean Ezekiel in the future as well. Now God had promised over and over in His Word. That He would restore Israel, right? And He would not leave them scattered or at the mercy of these foreign nations. That is in fact what God is promising here and what He had promised to this same group in prior messages through Ezekiel and Jeremiah. But again, this is right after the full defeat, their full defeat at the hands of Babylon. And with that being so fresh on their minds, I'm sure this message of hope was given to them again for that reassurance to remind them, I'm not done with you. There is still hope to come. So God gives Ezekiel one more word of hope here to give to them. Beginning of verse 12, God tells Ezekiel to prophesy to them that their graves will will open and they will rise from their graves. Israel would rise from the dead. And this just really expands from just the picture of those slain as they had no graves. We we talked about that earlier. God is giving just yet another promise of resurrection here for the nation of Israel. And here he's emphasizing again the restoration of all of the people of Israel. The resurrection of the nation of Israel would not just be a promise to be a nation again, though, but to enjoy the full covenantal blessings which had been given to them. To be on their land again, something that they were not enjoying at all at that moment, right? This would cause them to know again that Yahweh is God. According to Jeremiah 16, 14, This time is spoken of there. He says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but instead as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where He had driven them. So this future event would bring them to the point of, really recognizing it more than even the the, the restoration or the the, uh, exodus out of Egypt. The regathering of Israel will be so significant that in comparison, again, they will no longer speak of those great blessings and work of God in their exodus from Egypt. Again, the event that probably is, is most recognized by the people of Israel as being blessed by Yahweh, but instead they will see this new work of God as even greater, if I can put it that way. We haven't seen this happen yet. There's been no recognition of this from the people of Israel in this sense. That, that exodus from Egypt is still the greatest event of blessing in their minds which they can point to. And finally, in verse 14, we see the third part of this, part, or this future blessing and this promise is of supreme importance. God would not just make them alive again physically, he wouldn't just put them back in their land. He would place His Spirit within them. Amen. This is new covenant language here and promises. The Lord promised it would happen and so it will. So we see in this passage an illustration of God's promise to bring life from death, right? The rebirth of the nation of Israel. The prophet Isaiah and the prophet Hosea, they both tell us this event's going to happen quickly. In Isaiah 66, verses 7-8, through 8, we read, Before she is in labor... She gave birth because her, before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son who has heard such a thing. Who has heard such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth? Says the Lord, I who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God. The idea there is that this is going to happen quickly and God will not just bring on pain for the nation of Israel, but He will give birth. He will give relief. That's the idea we're to get there. Isaiah 6 uh, verses 1 and 2 says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us. That, we may, that He may heal us, He has struck us down, that He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up, that we will live before Him. The idea again is this idea of, of being restored quickly. And this will happen in, in, in a, a quick period of time when God moves, when He works on the nation of Israel. So Israel will be brought back from the dead. They will be given life and it will be done quickly once God begins that work. The current current people here in Ezekiel, they were cut off and hopeless, right? And God gives them this promise, and that is significant. God was not through with His people, and He is making that known. The answer to the original question then that God asked Ezekiel is obviously yes. Can these bones live again? Yes, they can, and they will. A dead nation under foreign rule, without a king, without a temple, or without even being a united people would one day become a a living and thriving nation with God once again in their midst. A couple of things as we close to kind of give us an application and and to remember as we finish this chapter. There's three things I want to point out as we try to close tonight. First, I want you to, to picture Ezekiel in this passage for a moment. Picture Ezekiel, but picture him with an audience of people watching him act this out. Okay? And when I say act, I mean actually go through. He's not acting as in a, a movie, but you know, he's, he's, he's doing exactly what God is telling him to do. But imagine a group of people watching this take place. A group of people without the ability to see or hear the Spirit of God. A man walks out into a field of dead bones. Bones dead so long that they were dry and sun bleached. Zero semblance of life anywhere in the valley. This man walks around the valley for a bit, viewing these bones. And then like a madman, he begins to tell these bones that God would give them life. He would put them together and he would give them flesh and skin and breathe into them again and they would live. Anyone seeing this from Ezekiel would have thought he was a crazy man, right? This would be the height of folly to the world seeing this. But the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4, verse 12, the word of the Lord is both living and active. Active being a word which can be translated powerful and effectual. Peter writes in his first epistle, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. God's word is not only living, according to Peter, but it is able to give life. Jesus said during his own ministry in John chapter 6, verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh has no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So God's word here is the power for life, right? No matter what the world might think, God's word is life and it is power. And God uses Ezekiel here. To preach and speak His Word for life. And Ezekiel is used because he obeyed and he preached to these dead bones despite how absurd it looked or sounded. Just like Ezekiel, we are also to obey and preach to the dead, right? It seems absurd and hopeless at times, even to us. And to the world, it is utter foolishness that life can come from preaching. From preaching that a man put to death on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago can give life. But there is wonder-working power in the living Word of God. And through the preaching of the Gospel, God turns death into life. He enables the dead to know truth and see that Jesus didn't stay in that grave. After His death, He defeated death for the salvation of His people, right? Right? We are to preach that power. We are to tell others that good news no matter how foolish it may seem to others. And let us not shy away from that. Let us not lose faith in that promise of life and the life giver. Second, if you go all the way back to the garden, God brought forth life from dust entirely independent from anyone or anyone else, right? There was no one else alive to do anything other than God Himself. He brought life independently of anything or anyone. There's no actor in that process, but God alone. There's no question then that God has the power to give life, right? And we see clearly in our passage that it was not the power of Ezekiel that brought life, but instead the power of God. But again, God chose to speak through Ezekiel to bring life, right? In fact, since the garden, there have been very few instances where God worked apart from a human messenger. In the New Testament, you will search far and wide for an example of salvation apart from the message being delivered from a human messenger. Even Paul was the recipient of the gospel through human means prior to his salvation on the road to Damascus. That is why Jesus asked him in that moment, why do you kick against the goads? Paul had been fighting the truth of the gospel for some time prior to his conversion on the road to Damascus. Further, in the few instances that God did choose to work apart from a human messenger, for example, with Abraham or Moses, there was a clear voice to them from God and a clear interaction with that person whom God was working with, right? They knew it immediately. It wasn't some silent tugging or change which they walked around with unaware of for years or months or even weeks. They knew God was speaking to them and they knew what was going on. We will continue to emphasize when we preach, especially when obviously when the passage is is, is so uh, easily used to emphasize this point. And there are very few passages, I think, in Scripture better to emphasize this point. But we will continue to emphasize and combat the heresy that God chooses to work apart from the gospel that He chooses to save whether someone knows of Christ or not. They just have to be an elect. God chooses, let me use that word again, God chooses to work through human messengers to deliver the good news of the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus. And through the power of that message, which is His Word, The breath of life is breathed into dead men and women unto salvation. First Corinthians chapter one verse twenty-one says, "For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of, of what we preach to save those who believe." I hate to say this, but I, I once—I'll I, tell you a, a, of an interaction I had with a pastor at once one time. But I once heard a pastor who claims to believe in. The sovereignty of God and believe in election and predestination. But I I once heard him, he told me directly, I'll just put it that way. He told me directly that he believed, if he believed the way I did about the use of the gospel, that it was necessary for a person to hear the gospel preached in order to be saved, he would have no motivation to preach. His reasoning was that it didn't matter then if he preached, if he believed the way I did. It didn't matter if he preached or not because God was going to make sure that someone preached to one of his elect, right, in order to bring salvation about. Because his elect could not not be saved, and even if he didn't do it, somebody was going to do it. So what motivation did he have to go do it? Now, he is right in a sense. God will bring His Word to each of his elect and make it effectual to them, and they will hear the Gospel and they will be saved. There is truth in that. But to hear such a statement and attitude from a man who stands before a church pastoring them, her claims to be a Christian period, was shocking. I have to question the heart of such a man who is so willing to proclaim direct disobedience to God in order to justify his theology. And his theology was that God didn't work through the gospel. And so it doesn't matter whether or not they heard about Christ or not because they would be saved anyways. That is not at all what we see from Ezekiel here in our passage. Now, I guess it's possible that Ezekiel could have refused to speak to these bones, right? God could have chosen to use another man instead of have his message delivered through Ezekiel. Of course, God could have also just put Ezekiel to death for refusing to obey his, his will and his command here. But we saw in chapter 33 that Ezekiel was chosen by God to be a watchman for Israel. He was to both warn them of the danger to come for their rebellion to God, and he was to speak to them God-given words of life. That same principle is echoed all through God's Word, and it is meant for every generation, including ours today. If we refuse to be a watchman or to tell others of the good news of Jesus, and they die in their sins, then their blood is on our hands. We can't save them. Don't get me wrong. That is not our work. That is clearly the the power of God. But God is also clear that we have a responsibility to tell others of his word and we have culpability for our refusal to do so And any theology that tells you differently is heresy lastly it is important for us to see the dual nature in this passage israel the nation of israel ethnic israel is promised to be revived here they were and still are dead as a nation in a sense again they are not in any way receiving the blessings of god they have only a very small portion of their land even to this day, despite having been recognized as a nation some 75 years ago. So they certainly haven't been restored to the land God promised them. They are still being oppressed and despised by the nations of the world. But it is clear here, in my opinion, and in many other passages, that ethnic Israel will one day be restored and those things will not be taking place. So I, I, I don't want to make this passage something that it is not, okay? There is certainly a gospel message Lesson here for us, but the thrust of this message, the thrust of this passage from God is not specifically about spiritual, general spiritual regeneration of man. It is not about the Great Commission specifically, although we can have and we can and have drawn important applications from this passage concerning the Great Commission that we should learn and take. But this passage is specifically and primarily about the future restoration of the nation of Israel. That said, the restoration of Israel absolutely cannot happen without a spiritual birth in each of those of ethnic Israel who will be part of that restoration. God will not just restore Israel in their current state and give them all the material blessings they've been promised while they remain spiritually dead, rejecting their Messiah. That cannot and will not happen. Further, this promise can only and will only be effectual through the New Covenant, which was given to Israel in the Old Testament and was ratified by the death and the blood of Jesus the covenant which we as Gentiles have been grafted into and we experience in part today as believers in Jesus. But only when God takes out the heart of stone from the people of Israel and gives them a heart of flesh set on loving and obeying the Word of God and believing in Jesus as their Messiah will this restoration take place. As we saw in these passages in Isaiah and Hosea, this will occur quickly into a vast number of Israelites when it happens. God has promised that it will happen and it will come to pass. Let us be thankful first that God is a promise keeper even when we fail. I believe that the restoration of Israel is such a great example to us of that, right? Of Him being a promise keeper even when we fail and fail miserably. And so we can be secure in the promises we have because of this truth. But when this restoration happens, that also means Jesus will return to set up His kingdom and reign on this earth. So I ask you, are you ready? Are you ready for that return? Are you ready for the promises that Ezekiel was given to the nation of Israel for the whole world eventually one day to witness and to see and to recognize that Yahweh is their God and He is King? Stand with me.